Hey, Icon, uh, it's good to be with you today. Uh, we are jumping into a new series. And if you've been with us, or if you were with us this time last year, you remember that we did the first five chapters of the Gospel of John. And then we stopped and we pivoted to Romans. Then we stopped Romans. And we pivoted back to Genesis. And that's kind of the pattern that we're going to be doing uh, until we're done. And we'll pick up new books along the way. So we are picking back up in the Gospel of John. Uh, we are going to start in John chapter 5, verse 19. But today, before we do that, I want to do a little bit of a recap week, right? So uh, I, I don't know about you guys, but I was obsessed with the show Lost. I don't know if you guys remember that show. Most of you are too young. You were like 10. You weren't allowed to uh, watch that show. But Lost was amazing. Kind of lost the thread a little at the end, but the beginning was awesome. My favorite part of that show, though, was at the very beginning when it said, previously on Lost. And then it just was like this recap of all the highlights, the best parts uh, of the show uh, to that point. And that's what we're going to do today. We are going to do previously in John. Okay. So what I want to do is start in John chapter one. We're going to do five chapters of John. This might take a minute. I'm sorry. Uh, but what I want to do is just catch us up a little bit for those of you who weren't a part of icon, uh, last year and, uh, and weren't part of that series that you kind of get caught up on what we're talking about. Uh, but then also I'm just assuming, you know, 2020 has been a heck of a year and, uh, and you don't remember anything that was going on in January. So, uh, we're going to just for everybody's sake start back over and here's how I want to do this I'm, I'm going to start in John chapter 1 and we're going to use this prologue right the the prologue to John as kind of the foundation because most of the big themes in fact probably all of the big themes of the gospel of John are found in the first 18 verses of John 1 right so we see these themes like life and light and who God is or who Jesus is, that Jesus is God, that he has come near to his people. And so we're going to kind of just march through John 1, 1 through 18, but then connect the dots to some of the stories in those first five chapters. Okay, so that's what we're going to do today. Before we do any of that, though, John does this thing where that is just super helpful to us preachers, where at the end, he tells us what the whole point of his book was, which is great, because usually you read a book kind of going, what's the point of this, right? And he tells us in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John says this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John tells us, he goes, listen, I, I spent a lot of time with Jesus. In fact, arguably John was Jesus' BFF, right? And now we're here a couple of decades after Jesus has been raised from the dead. And John, he kind of pictured John sitting under a tree in his old age, reminiscing about all the times with Jesus that he had. And he's got this filter because he's like, man, there's a lot of things I could talk about. But the filter is you guys have to know the essence of who Jesus is, which is, according to John chapter 20, that he is the Christ, the son of God. And that by believing that, by putting our lives in the hands of Jesus, that we might actually experience life in his name. And so John goes, all right, I, I can't put it all in here. So the things I'm going to choose to talk about, the stories that I'm going to choose to tell, are the ones that make clear to you 
that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and that the offer of life with him is eternal life, is true life, full life, thriving, flourishing life with Jesus. So let's jump into John chapter 1 and, uh, and, and see what it is that John wants us to know uh, about his friend Jesus. So starting in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, we books, whole books have been written just on those two verses. In fact, some have argued that that first sentence, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, is the most theologically rich sentence ever written in human history, and I am not one to argue. And so uh, this is just a, a, a deep trove of value for us, and I can't unpack it all. We're going to kind of do it pretty quickly, actually. But here's the key point. The claim of John the claim of Jesus, as we'll see, and the claim of Christianity is that Jesus was God. He's not just a good dude, not just a good teacher, not just a great leader. He was all of those things, by all accounts, great dude. But more than that, he was God. Right? So John is doing some really uh, important work here in this sentence going, in the beginning was the word. And this word in the Greek is logos. And this is a word that has deep philosophical meaning for his uh, initial readers, right? Like they would understand that in Greek philosophy, the logos is the kind of primary orienting principle of the universe. And so the very first sentence is John going, I want you to know who Jesus is. And so I'm actually going to start with this idea that you already know, and I'm going to tell you more about that. So he goes, in the beginning was the Logos. And everybody in the room is going, okay, yeah, got it. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God. So they go, okay, so this uh, primary orienting principle of the universe was with God, in relationship with God in some sense. And so they would not have primarily thought about this kind of spatially, right? They wouldn't have said, okay, Logos is this thing. It's a word like a book or something. Like it's a, it's an, it's a principle, it's an idea. And so when John writes that the Logos was with God, he's simply saying that this primary orienting principle of the universe finds itself in relationship with something called theos or God, and that these two things go together, right? And they go, okay, like they'll probably track with that idea to go, of course, if there is a primary orienting principle of the universe, there's probably someone or something who thought that thing up or invented or created it. So they're still tracking. And then he says this, and the word was God. So not only is this logos um, exist, not only does the logos exist in relationship with God, but he says now actually the logos is God, that they are one in the same. And so again, uh, probably those initial hearers, and, and honestly, you can translate this pretty easily to our modern world where we kind of have this kind of woo-woo spirituality where everybody wants to claim, yes, I'm a spiritual person, but there's no definition around it at all that John's going, okay, you've got this, you know, this, the force, right? Like, or, or, or this, this idea of the universe and something that's holding us all together and we're 
connected, right? Like Hallmark cards say stuff like that. But then he starts to add a little bit of detail and he goes, and then there's this other thing called theos and the, the woo-woo is connected to the theos, right? Like the, the woo-woo is in relationship with this thing called God. And in fact, I'm going to tell you that the woo-woo, this thing that you're okay with, this idea of connectedness and, and orienting principle of the universe, it actually is God. They're one in the same. Okay, so it's like personifying this idea that's kind of vague. He goes, no, it's actually not that vague. It's a, it's a thing. It's God. Then he goes one step further. He was in the beginning with God. So now we've gone from woo-woo to woo-woo in relationship to now woo-woo is God. So now it's a he. And we're going to find out here just in a moment that the he, the logos that John is talking about, is Jesus. So by, by verse 18, everybody's head that has just read this passage, you know, initially the Greek folks and, and philosophers who read this stuff are tracking, 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 head explodes. Wait, this is a dude? Your argument is this logos, this primary orienting principle of the universe, this connectedness, this woo-woo kind of spirituality. Not only are you saying it's theos, it's God, but you're actually also saying it's Jesus, it's God become a man. John goes, yeah, that's it. You got it. And he was like my best friend. We like hung out together all the time. He leaned against me one time. It was pretty sweet. That's the argument. Right? Like that's the argument, not just of this section, not just this verse, but that really this is the argument of Christianity, that Jesus is God and that this idea, all of these ideas about the connectedness of the universe or this deeper spirituality go, yeah, yeah you don't have to be so vague about it. His name's Jesus. Right? So the, the version of it that we are often so comfortable with in our culture that, that just makes us feel like, I, you know, I want to be a spiritual person and I would never, you know, certainly some people just claim to be absolute materialist atheists for sure. But most people in our world claim to pray. In fact, some, uh, some stats I've seen, close to 80% of Americans say they pray. Well, you can't be a materialist atheist and say you pray. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, maybe you're doing it, but I don't know who you're talking to right so the idea of this kind of connected world and spiritual reality and i'm part of that it becomes more and more and more difficult when you get more and more specific and john's just gotten really really specific here it's jesus it's jesus and this is as i said the central claim of our faith that jesus it's not just a good dude, not just a good teacher, not just a powerful leader, not just an influential person, but he was in fact God in flesh. God put on human flesh to be with us. And Jesus demonstrates this, in fact, over and over and over and over. Right? We said John's uh, hope here is to convince us that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we would have life in his name. So no doubt he picked a bunch of stories that would make us think, wow, maybe Jesus is God. And so we, we see Jesus demonstrate this. Chapter 2, verses 13 through 25 is an interesting uh, a, a little story here. So I'm going to read this. It says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Pigeons are the worst. I don't know. I, I, I'm with Jesus on this one, right? Like, take these pigeons out of here. Um, Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's a prophecy about the Messiah. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things, right? So Jesus rolls into the temple, this, the kind of the center of religious and spiritual life for the Jews, rolls in the temple, starts overturning tables, whipping fools, you know, I was going to bring that back, and, and, and generally overturning their spiritual process, their religious life. The, the Jewish leaders come to Jesus and go, what are you doing, man? Who do you think you are? Right? He goes, by what authority are you doing these things? He answers, verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now the Jews think he's talking about the temple, this physical location, and they're not dumb for thinking that. And that's kind of the obvious implication. Very few people are referring to their own bodies as a temple, except for when I'm like working out and stuff. I'm like, God, take care of the temple, you know? Um, but in this context, it makes total sense that the Jews would assume that Jesus is claiming, you tear down this huge building and I will rebuild it in three days. Now, his daddy was a carpenter, so by all means, Jesus has skills, but that's a big job. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? And then John just like, you know, interjects these little things from later on, right? I love this part. It's almost like John just kind of slipping his little inside info, 2020 vision thing into these passages. So verse 21, he goes, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. <laughs> like, we get that. They didn't get it. It was kind of funny, right? Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, why did I choose that passage? Because there's a whole bunch of passages where Jesus is doing miracles, feeding the 5,000, raising people from the dead, like a whole bunch of examples that Jesus had demonstrated some significant power. But see, what, what I want to point out here in this passage is that Jesus was claiming divine authority over the religious world, not just the physical world in that he had some divine power to stop waves and walk on water and do all the things, but he is coming in and one of the very first things he does in fact, he, he's already turned water into wine at this point, right? So he's already demonstrated his power over the physical world, over the party world, right? Like chief partier. Um, but he is now also demonstrating his power over the religious system and going like, y you don't get it. You don't, you're not doing this right. You've made a mockery of my father's house and, and I'm not going to have it. And so I'm going to overturn tables and whip fools, Right? Well, even more than that, everyone else got it too. Skip to chapter 5, verses, verse 18. After all kinds of stuff has happened, Jesus just got done healing a guy at, uh, at, the, at a pool who was uh, uh, lame, meaning he couldn't walk, not that he was just like lame. Um, but in verse 18, it says this, this was why, because he did this, because he healed this guy on the Sabbath, and that was a no-no. It says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. 
Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Okay, so there was no, there, I hear from people sometimes like, well, it was like a couple hundred years later that people decided Jesus was God. Until then, he was just a teacher. <laughs> That's just not true. That's just not even close to being true. Not only do we have one of the Gospels explicitly saying it here, but they are telling the story of the fact that the Jews in the very moment saw what Jesus was saying, saw what Jesus was doing, understood the implications of it, and it gets worse. We're going to talk about when Jesus flat out called himself God here in a couple of weeks. Jesus was God. This is the claim. So, you know, believe it or not, and I know many of you out there do not. And that's, that's great. I'm glad you're here. But believe it or not, Jesus' claim is God, is that he is God. And man, it is hard to argue that he has not had that kind of impact on the world. So it's, it, it's funny to me sometimes when I hear people argue like he was a good teacher, he's a good leader, he was a good, good guy. There's been a lot of great teachers. In fact, Jesus is kind of confusing sometimes. Like, I'll listen to other teachers way more than Jesus at just at a level of kind of comprehension, right? Like, well, he was a good leader. Well, I mean, was he? At the end, there was like three guys left. Everyone else had abandoned him. So I don't I mean, if that's, the, if, that, if that's like the bar for good leadership, then there's a lot of great leaders who just drive away thousands of people and are left with only a few, Right, so it doesn't make sense to me. He didn't write anything. He didn't, like, there was no legacy. And yet, no single human being has had more impact on the world than Jesus Christ. In fact, a historian by the name of H.G. Wells says this. says, a historian like myself, who doesn't even call himself a Christian, finds the picture centering irresistibly around the life and character of this most significant man. The historian's test of an individual's greatness is, what did he leave to grow? Did he start men to thinking along fresh lines with a vigor that persisted after him? By this test, Jesus stands first. Okay, so this is the claim that Jesus is God. And, and it's hard not to look at the outcome of his very short life. He lived about 33 years. He was in the public eye for about three and yet fundamentally changed the world. It's hard to look at the outcome of his life and not go, well, he might have been a little more than just a good teacher, just a good leader, just a good guy. Might have been something more. So that's one. Jesus is God. Two, and we're going to have to start moving a little more quickly here. Number two, Jesus brings life. So go back to John 1, verses 3 and 4. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So John argues first, Jesus is God, that primary orienting principle of the universe, the logos, that was God. In fact, in relation with God was God and he has a name, it was Jesus. And what that Jesus did was says in him was life. All things were created through him. Not one thing that was created wasn't created by him. Jesus 
created all things. So in him is life means both. He is the creator of life, set all of this into motion, guided it by his hands, spoke it into existence by his word. But so not only does he create life, but he also recreates life. Right? He is the creator, he is the sustainer, and he is the recreator of our lives. Go to chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. This will be a familiar verse to you, likely. If it's not, uh, I don't know what to say. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's the end zone verse, right? Like if you watch an NFL football game, there's almost always a guy near the end zone with the sign that says John 3.16. If you're ever wondering, like, who's he rooting for? They don't know. There's no number 316 on the field. This guy's an idiot, right? Like might be, but also he's probably talking about John 3.16. This is one of the most famous verses in the scriptures. So this is Jesus talking to a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish leader, talking about his purpose, that Jesus's purpose for being there on earth. And again, said, telling this man Nicodemus, God so loved the world, the world that he made, the world that he created. He loved that world so much, even though there's all this death and violence and, and rebellion and all that's going on in the world. It goes, his love for his creation could not be overcome by the evil of his creation. In fact, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The, the, the love of the Father for his creation, the love of God for his creation caused him to send the Son, Jesus, the Logos, to be with us, to bring life to us. It says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, I, I love when people quote this verse to me, John 3, 17, and then just kind of pull that one out and be like, see, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. That's not what he's here for. He came to save the world, so don't condemn the world. Cool, cool, cool. Keep reading. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. So yeah, Jesus doesn't come to condemn because those who don't believe in him are already condemned. That's their, that's their status, right? So Jesus continues. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, right? Jesus says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. That's Jesus. We'll talk about that in a moment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. This is, the, this is the opportunity, this is the situation, and it is the opportunity that Jesus presents to us. That Jesus, in his conversation, now note that this, this conversation with Nicodemus, this guy is a religious leader, well thought of, well respected. This isn't some, you know, some bad guy, right? Like this is one of the good guys for, in, in terms of their culture, the guy who would think he is the good guy, and yet Jesus looks directly at him and in previous uh, verses has said, you got to be born again, man. Like it's not enough to just be religious. It's not enough just to follow the law. It's not enough to just kind of go through the motions. You have to be reborn as a new kind of person. 
And Nicodemus goes, I, I don't have any idea what you're talking about, Jesus. What in the world does that mean? He literally says, are you, are you suggesting I go back into my mother's womb? And the answer is, huh, no, like, no. And probably Jesus is like, gross, man, come on. Like, no, that's not what he's saying. He goes, you have to be born once again, reborn in the spirit of God, by the spirit of God, by placing your life and your trust in Jesus, the son of God. So Jesus is the creator and he is the recreator and he offers us the opportunity to be recreated. He says, here's your choice, rebellion or recreation. Rebellion or recreation. Rebellion against the creator of your heart, the creator of your soul, the creator of your entire self who made you and formed you and loved you so much that he sent his son to go die for you, to be with you, to make a way for you to be recreated. So here's the choice. Continue in rebellion or choose to be recreated, to allow the spirit of God to do the work of God in you to make you once again a son of God, a child of God, a daughter of God in relationship with God and to experience the life that you were made for, that eternal life, that deep, flourishing life with God that you were made for. Because the, those who choose to be rebellious are choosing to walk away from their creator, choosing to kind of make their own way, choose their own way. And God, your creator, simply goes, you can do that, but I'm just telling you, I made you. I made you, so I, I know what you're for. I know what makes you tick. I know what will actually satisfy you. I know what will bring you joy. I know what will bring you contentment. I know. You don't know. And that's why you've experienced this series of failures and disappointments, because you don't know. I know. Come talk to me. I made you. And I'm offering to remake you. If you just stop rebelling, I'm offering to remake you into the person I made you to be. Come on. Come home. This is, the, this is the offer of Jesus, that he is God and he brings life. So again, believe him or not, like the offer of Jesus is to make you into a new kind of human. The one you were made to be. The one he made you to be. Number three, Jesus is God. Jesus brings life. Jesus is the light. Go to verse nine, back to chapter one, verse nine. John says the true light, and we'll talk about, he, he talks about another kind of light. We'll come back to that. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Okay. So here, here John, again, 20, 30 years after Jesus' time with him has passed, he comes, sits down, and goes, here's what I realize. Jesus came into the world. The true light came into the world. And the very world that he made, his people didn't recognize him. Right? This, this would like be, be like me coming home from work and my five kids looking at me like, who are you again? 
You look vaguely familiar, but I don't remember who you are. And John is kind of thinking about that, going like, that's crazy, right? That's crazy. He was in the world, the world that was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. That's crazy to think about, right? That, that God has crafted and shaped this world to be, and even more so, that, that we as humans are made to be his image, to reflect who he is. And yet when he was in our presence, they didn't know him. Now, in spite of that, it's not like he shows up in glorious fashion, nobody kind of knows who he is, and he's like, well, forget you guys then, and just takes off. That's not what it says. In fact, it, what's amazing about this is the, the, this, this claim that John makes about the effect of Jesus' presence, right? In verse 9, the true light, and what's those next three words? Which enlightens everyone. Which enlightens everyone. John goes, you know, they didn't recognize him, but it's not because he was unrecognizable. They didn't see him, but it's, it's not because he couldn't be seen. He did miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. He made claim after claim after claim after claim. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people were witness to these events. Their eyes have been opened. They've seen, they've been shown, they've been told. They are without excuse. So, so if we've been enlightened, like that we, we're in a room and the lights have been turned on. If we can't see, it's not because it's not bright enough, it's because we are choosing not to see. Right, I mean, there, there's this great story uh, a little further on in chapter one, starting in verse 43. Jesus has started to call his disciples, right? He chooses these 12 disciples and he kind of picks them up one by one uh, along these first couple of chapters. And in verse 43 uh, through 51, you see him pick up a bunch of new disciples. And here's, here's how that goes. It says, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Which is kind of a messed up thing to say, right? Like that's in the Bible now, right? Forever now people are going to be like, Man, was Nazareth terrible, right? This must have been a terrible place. I mean, it's kind of a sick burn uh, to be in the Bible forever, right? I mean, so we got to think about like, it's Pialop, basically. Like, can anything good come out of Pialop? Like, no, of course not, right? So Philip says to him, come and see. I know it sounds crazy, but come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? He goes, man, you're going to see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. <laughs> this is one of my favorite moments, right? Jesus, Nathaniel's coming towards Jesus. Jesus goes, oh, there's a, there's a great Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel's like, how do you know anything about me? 
And Jesus goes, well, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip came and talked to you. Now, maybe that's amazing. Maybe that was like in another town or something. But I also kind of like to picture that the fig tree is just like right there. And he's like, I just, I just saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel's like, oh my gosh, you are the son of God. And Jesus, I guarantee you, laughed at him and was like, that's all? Man, this is early. This is chapter one. I got to imagine Jesus is going like, this is going to be so easy. All I have to do is say, I saw them under trees and they're going to freak out. Like I had planned to walk on water, not necessary, right? Like they are so easily pleased, right? Jesus goes, truly, truly, I say to you, you are going to see some things, right? You are going to see uh, the heavens open, the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Like you are going to see some things. I am going to reveal to you. I'm going to open your eyes to the realities of who I am and what is available to you. Jesus is the light. Jesus reveals. Jesus opens our eyes. It's our choice whether or not we're going to look around the room and see. Okay, so I, I hear people all the time go, well, we don't really know this. We don't really know that. We know a lot. We, we know a lot. We have a lot of eyewitness accounts about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. We have a lot more eyewitness accounts about who Jesus was and what Jesus did than a lot of historical facts that you don't question. It's not about a lack of light. It really isn't. And we're going to talk about this in this series. It's not about a lack of light. It's about a, a lack of seeing. That we are not choosing to see. We're not choosing to look at the things upon which the light has been shown. Because honestly, there's some things we don't want to see. There's some things that are going to cramp our style a little bit. There are going to be some things that, that tell us we ought to do this and not that. Or this is important and that's not important. Even though we think this is super important, Jesus is going to go, it's really not that important. It's here today and gone tomorrow. And we're going to go, but like, this is all I got, man. So the lights have been turned on. Jesus has enlightened everyone. It's choice for us to make whether or not we're going to see. And, and for the next eight, ten weeks or so of this series, we are going to have the light turned on on a whole bunch of things. And the choice that we're going to have to make is, will we choose to see the world in the new way that Jesus is showing? Or we choose to just close our eyes and pretend things are the way we want them to be. That's the choice we'll make. Number four, Jesus is near. Go back to John 1, verse 14. This is the big moment, right? So John has been unpacking throughout this prologue all these ideas, starting with in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and whoa, the Logos is God, and the Logos has got a name, it's Jesus, right? We've gotten down all the way to the bottom, he goes, and then the Word but we see, if you're just reading this from top to bottom, you wouldn't know that he's talking about Jesus yet, right? But now you do. Verse 14, the word became flesh and the word dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Skip to verse 16. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. 
So here's the story. God creates the world. The world walks in rebellion. God so loved the world that he sent his son so that they could see who God is. That they could see his creator. No one had ever seen God. They'd seen the work of God. They'd seen the creative genius of God. They'd experienced the love and grace and mercy of God in and through his creation. But they'd never seen God until Jesus showed up and said, what you see in me is what you can know of God. The word became flesh. This primary orienting principle of the universe isn't just this abstract idea, this vague spirituality, but it is a God. It is a person who has love for you, love so much that he chose to put on flesh to be near us, to be like us, to be alongside of us, to walk with us and to show us what we could not otherwise see, which is who God is. We in our kind of finite physical world cannot look up to see the infinite divine. So the infinite divine puts on flesh, enters into our world and becomes like us. This is why I think his very first miracle in John 2 verses 1 through 11 is such an earthy, everyday, super normal kind of miracle, right? It's the wedding at Cana. So John 2, verse 1, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with, the, with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine, right? So they're hanging at this party. Mom comes over and goes, they have no wine. That's, that's a disaster, right? Like that's a disaster at any party. We've run out of booze. I mean, the, what's a party at that point, right? Jesus said to her, verse 4, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come, right? He says, I, I'm here for a purpose. And honestly, uh, wine problems at a wedding are not kind of my main thing. That's not really like the main reason why I'm here. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Even when you're God, you still have a mom, right? And mom still gets to just decide what you do. Uh, and so she comes to him with this problem. Jesus goes, it's not really my problem. Uh, Mary turns to the servants and goes, just do whatever he tells you. In other words, do something about this, Jesus. And I'm super curious, like what miracles Jesus had performed, you know, at home that made Mary go like, he can handle this. I've seen him. He makes a great brandy, you know, like you just wait. So Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And John doesn't look at this as just like the first awesome thing Jesus did. He says, this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee, manifesting his glory. A sign points beyond itself to a greater truth. So this isn't just Jesus making the party go on, but it's also Jesus entering into the actual everyday real needs of the people and solving the problems. 
So Jesus is God. Jesus brings life. Jesus is the light. But man, for us today, maybe the most important thing we could hear is that Jesus is near. He's here. He's with us. He's in the mix with us. There is not a problem he cannot and will not solve. There is not a problem he does not care about because what he cares about most is you. And so if it matters to you, it matters to him. Now, in the midst of that interaction, he may tell you actually it doesn't matter as much as you think it is because he loves you and he's going to enter into it with you. And, and, and you know this if you have kids, right? Your kids come to you with problems all the time that are weak. They are not big problems, right? They are very small, insignificant, no big deal problems that have thrown them into hysterics, okay? And so what do you do? Do you, when they come to you with their stupid problems and, and they're hysterical, you go, this is a stupid problem, stop being hysterical. Sometimes, but mostly you go, okay, I understand. Come talk to me. Give me a hug. I know that probably made you mad, probably made you real sad. Let's work through it. You enter in, and then at the end, you go, hey, was that really that big a deal? And they go, no, it probably wasn't, right? No. And next time, they do the same thing, and you enter in again, the same thing, and enter again, the same thing, and you slap them. And then, I mean, you enter in again. and Like, this is just what you do because you care about them. You love them, right? This is what Jesus does. Listen, I am not here for wine. I mean, I'm not here to make wine. It's not my main thing. Drink it, sure. But make it's not really my deal. But you know what? I care about you. I care about my mom. I care about this couple. I care about the party. I care about you, and so I'm going to work. That Jesus is near. The Christian faith is near. It touches real life, everything around us. This is why we talk about at Icon, that our mission is to make disciples who follow Jesus faithfully in real life. Because the, the faith in Jesus is for real life. It's for today. It's for all of the issues we face today. Last, we. So we know that Jesus is God. Jesus brings life. Jesus is the light. Jesus is near. We. What is our role in this? Verse 6. It says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. Now, here's what's confusing. John, this is not John talking about John in the third person. This is John talking about John the Baptist, right? But he, he, he kind of frames up John the Baptist's role in a very similar way that we are told that our role is to be witnesses to the light. That we bear, or so we, we, we are witnesses to what God has done. We, we see we know it, we feel it, we hear it, we, we see what God has done, but then we also bear witness. We confess with our mouths and confess with our lives what we know to be true. This is the challenge. This is the, this is the challenge that the scriptures give to Christians to go, hey, you've seen, you've been enlightened, you've chosen to see, now bear witness to that. Talk about what you've seen. So this is the challenge to us. But I also say for you who are here who are not a Christian, uh, this is an invitation. See this as an invitation to watch us. Watch us. Not through windows, not in a weird way, but just watch our lives. See what we do. See how we and, and here's, here, let me tell you what you're going to see. First, you're going to be disappointed. 
Because what, what you hope to see, I think, is some sort of transformative, really different, totally other kind of experience. And man, I wish that were true. But it's often not. In fact, oftentimes I think Christians worry more about being too close to people around them, too like uh, the non-Christian culture around them in, in some effort to fit in rather than just to pursue life with Christ and what, to whatever degree that is at odds with the culture, oh well. But I want you to watch us. I want you to see what the impact is of Jesus on our lives. And I want you to note the differences. And when there are no differences, I want you to hold us accountable. I want you to ask us, hey, why do you do that the same way I do? And maybe we have a good answer, or maybe we need to repent. Ask us. Engage. Hold us accountable. Go to the scriptures and go, well, Jesus says this, but I see you doing this. Why is that? Please do it nicely so that we can respond well. But ask. Push. This is the challenge that Jesus has laid before us to go, I am God. I bring life. I have enlightened you. I've come near to you. Why are you the same? Why are you the same? My offer is for more. My offer is for different. I've opened your eyes to see the different value structures from this world and my kingdom. I've opened your eyes to see the different future that you could pursue as a result of this new life in you. I've changed your language. I've changed your way of thinking. I've changed your way of behaving. Why are you the same? So that's the challenge for us as Christians. And, and, and lest we think that the core of this whole message is be different, do different, talk different, act, work, and, and be this different way, I want us to end really quickly in verse 20. John says in verse 20 of chapter 3, it says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. And this is an observation that Jesus makes that is absolutely true, that oftentimes those who are doing things they know are wicked will shy away from the light, will hide their deeds so that they are not exposed. But those who have been walking righteously gladly embrace the light because they know that it's only going to expose the good. Now, here's where the gospel goes even one step further than that. That the invitation is not just to bring your good deeds into the light, but the invitation is, no, actually the light is exactly where your wicked deeds need to be because the light will shine upon them and reveal not just their wickedness, but it will reveal the grace of God for them. So it, for, for those of us who, who hear a message like this and go, yeah, but I got all this junk. Good, great. This is the perfect place for you to be. Yeah, I've got all this shame and all this guilt and all these things, and I don't know. Good, awesome, bring it. We want more of that. As much junk as you got, bring it out into the light because it's in the light that it can get healed. It's in the light that it can get exposed for the junk that it is, and then you will be able to see because in the dark, sometimes junk looks okay. 
Sometimes in the dark, junk can kind of, kind, of, kind of maybe work like it's not that bad a thing. But when it's out in the light, you realize, oh, this is terrible. It's worse than I feared. But it's in that exposure that we recognize what it is we've been hoarding and protecting and giving ourselves to. And we can see it clearly that it's junk. And then in the light, we can see clearly that what God is calling us into, that what God, the, the way that God has made for us is good. But all, that can only happen in the light. It can only happen in the light. So the invitation is just, just, just come in the light. Because, man, even if at the end of the day you don't believe this stuff, okay. But wouldn't you want to see clearly what it is you've given yourself to? Just to know. Just to know, like, okay, I don't believe these things are more valuable. I don't believe this is eternal life. That's fine. I believe these things are what matter, and this is what I want to give my life to. Okay. But don't you want to at least know actually what those things are? Don't you want to see it clearly? And Jesus says that he will enlighten everyone. So just bring it into the light and go, okay, let's compare and contrast. This is what I've given my life to. This is what Jesus has offered. Let's look at him clearly and plainly. Because, man, I, I promise you that if you do that work, you will see all of this stuff for what it actually is and see that it just pales in comparison to what Jesus has offered. And you are going to want more and more and more and more of that. So I don't care if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, I don't care. We all have to bring our junk to the light to go, okay, yeah, it's really bad. This is really gross. This is not worth my time. It's not worth my investment. It's not worth my emotion. It's not worth my value. It's not worth any of it. But that is. I want that. We can do that together. Let's pray. Jesus, we uh, are, are so desperately in need of you. And sometimes we don't know that, sometimes we don't feel that, uh, but it's true. That you loved the world, that God loved the world so much that he sent his son so that everyone who believes in him shall have eternal life, full life, a flourishing life, here on earth and eternally with the Father in heaven. This is the promise. This is the gift. This is what you came to bring to us. Lord, I pray that you would not just enlighten us, but open our eyes to be able to see our life in light of what you have offered to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, as always, we're going to transition to a time of response. And we'll do this in a few different ways, as we always do. Um, we'll sing. The band will come back and lead us in some more worship. Um, we will take communion together. Again, something we do each and every week because we never don't need to be reminded that Christ made a way for us. And so we take the bread and we take the wine or the juice. And we take the bread and we dip it in that wine and just remember his sacrifice for us, the great love that he poured out in his sacrifice and we give 
We give during this time because we have been given so much and we want to be a generous people. That's one of those things that the light exposes, right? Like the, the, that, that impulse in us to hoard things for ourselves, or the impulse in us to spend our way to happiness and contentment. When we bring that stuff out into the light, we go, oh, yeah, I, I, don't, know, I don't know why I ever would have thought that would bring me joy and contentment and happiness. I was so convinced of it in the darkness, but in the light, there's just no way that could bring me the joy that I need. And so we learn to be generous and to give away and we find actual joy in that. But before we do any of that, we're going to take some time to think, to pray, to meditate on the things that we have heard today. So let's bow our heads together.